For some, maybe it's Yoda from Star Wars, who is known as a wise sage, whose life was given not to just achieving victory in life, but also how to graciously accept defeat. The, the story goes on that when Jed, the Jedi Order, which Yoda had led for centuries, was exterminated during his watch, he went into exile, but he didn't give up or lose hope. He then guides Luke Skywalker and helps him bounce back from his own defeat at the hand of Darth Vader. So maybe Yoda comes to mind. For others, maybe it's Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid, who is remembered as the patient teacher who trained Daniel in karate, but also taught him an important lesson about standing up to bullies. And he did so by having Daniel paint his fence and wax his car. Who can forget? Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Wisdom, huh? Maybe it's neither of these. Maybe what comes to mind is someone who is old, who uses a cane with gray hair. Perhaps it's someone who has many degrees who wears glasses and who, who has many books at home and enjoys drinking lattes. In today's passage, James continues the theme of Christian character, specifically focusing on how Christians ought to live. We will learn the difference between two kinds of wisdom, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom, one that is self-centered, the other being God-centered. And if you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. Heavenly wisdom is displayed by good conduct. Heavenly wisdom is displayed by good conduct. And we have three characteristics of wisdom that we will be looking at. First, heavenly wisdom leads to godly conduct. Second, earthly wisdom is self-centered. And third, Heavenly wisdom is God-centered, and we will be going through these through our time together this morning. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the Epistle of James, chapter 3. And I'm also going to invite you to keep your Bible open, because we will be sticking our noses in our Bible to see where we're getting all of this understanding from this morning. So James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. And so this morning, the epistle of James 
continues teaching us about how we ought to live in this fallen world. James is a wonderful book that teaches us about Christian living in a fallen world. It has much to say about the character of God, about what he has done for us in Christ, and how we ought to respond to him. In the previous section uh, from a few weeks ago, when we read through uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James taught us about the importance of God-glorifying speech in the lives of those who teach, but also in the lives of all Christians, because in some way or another, we all teach others about God. James warned, warned us about the dangers of the tongue, in that the tongue is destructive, it's distorted, it's double-minded. One minute it blesses God, and the next it curses man. He tells us that this is not how Christians ought to live. James also tells us about the tongue's potential for, for good, in that it has the capacity for good. The words we speak, James says, are like a fountain of life. They can be a delight. They can bring healing to those who are hurting. More importantly, our tongues are to be used to glorify God. And in our passage today, we pick up on this passage in verse 13, going through verse 18, where James continues his flow of thought, having in mind those who have the desire to teach, but also applying it to the, to the church at large. His focus is on the kind of wisdom that one possesses, not so much on what wisdom is. So we look at the kind of wisdom that one possesses. And back in chapter 1, we learn that wisdom and its purpose is that wisdom is not simply about possessing knowledge, Right? Wisdom is not just about possessing knowledge. James also tells us that even the demons believe. The demons have a right theology of God. They understand that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, that He is all-wise, that He uh, exists uh, in one essence but three persons. The demons know this, but they're not saved. right? So it's not just about having right knowledge about God. No, it, also, it includes right knowledge, but it, it, it's also about living out what one believes about God, which the demons don't do. Right? And in its context of chapter 1, we learn that wisdom is to have the ability to understand your circumstances from God's perspective. The ability to understand your circumstances from God's perspective so that you would then respond rightly. For example, back in chapter 1, if you want to look at it, uh, James chapter 1, in, uh, beginning in verse 2, he tells us to count it all joy when we find ourselves in various kind of trials. Right? That's our response. That's how we ought to respond. And he tells us, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. That's our understanding or our knowledge. He says, because you know these things. You've learned these things. And then he tells us the end goal of our trial. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's God's perspective on what he is doing in your trials or through your trials. Right? There's a purpose behind your trials if you're in Christ. And the purpose is for you to look more like your Savior. 
So this is what wisdom looks like in the Bible. It's having a right understanding of who God is, but then also having the right ability to, the, the ability to rightly respond to your circumstances. The wonderful thing about this is that James knows that we all lack wisdom, right? So he continues telling us, if any one of you lacks wisdom, he says, ask God, because God is a generous God who gives to all who ask of him. He says, ask. Now, back to our passage in chapter 3, we examine the kind of wisdom that one possesses by learning about the three characteristics of wisdom. First, we find that true wisdom leads to godly conduct, or heavenly wisdom leads to godly conduct. We see that in verse 13, where we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now that James has taught us what wisdom is, he begins by asking the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? In essence, he's asking, Who possesses true wisdom among you all in the congregation? Who has the wisdom that comes from God? Another way to understand the question can be, who possesses the wisdom that comes from saving faith? Right? Because saving faith is what the Bible calls us to have. And we've talked about this in the first couple of chapters in our time in James. Remember that the letter as a whole deals with genuine saving faith compared to non-saving faith. And its fruit that results from genuine saving faith will lead to a godly or a true or a heavenly kind of wisdom. When James asks the question, he most likely is continuing to address those in the church who have the desire to teach. And we understand this from the context of our passage uh, which begins in 3.1, where James asks, uh, or says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, and then he goes on to explain why. The challenges that come with it, the, the stricter judgment that comes with it. And so here where we pick up in verse 13, he continues the flow of thought. While he's primarily addressing them, we have to understand that this teaching is not just for those that want to be teachers. This is for all Christians. This is for all of us because it can apply to all of us. So then James continues by examining the profession of wisdom and understanding that one claims to have from a biblical perspective. Now notice the qualifier. I said that it's from a biblical perspective. Uh, the Bible teaches us what wisdom is all about. We find in scripture that wisdom is founded on the knowledge of God as we already discussed but it doesn't end there. It then leads us to respond a certain way. James has taught us in chapter 1 where he teaches us about this generous God and what pleases him, which is for us to be quick to hear, slow to anger, to put away filth and wickedness. But then we're also told about how we are to respond in obedience. He tells us, but be doers of the word, not just hearers of it. Because it does us no good to simply 
show up on Sunday to take notes, to listen, but not do anything about it. James, the point that he makes is it's not the, do, it's not the hearers of the word that are justified, it's the doers of the word. Right? And so heavenly wisdom looks a certain way. Just like a few weeks ago when we uh, listened to Dr. Lister's sermon on the soils, right? It's not just about hearing the Word of God. It's about hearing a certain way, right? So James teaches us that wisdom is not just about knowing true things about God, but it should lead to a right response. In other words, knowledge of God leads or right knowledge of God ought to lead to a transformed lifestyle. Knowledge of God ought to lead to a transformed lifestyle. Or in other words, to godly conduct. Your life, my life, ought to be characterized by godliness, by a godly conduct. This is what we see in verse 13, in the second part of verse 13, where James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This godly conduct looks a certain way. It is, as James says, it's meek or gentle in spirit. Now let's think about the, the original audience for a second. The church that James was writing to was one that was spread out, one that was scattered throughout the Roman Empire, partly because of the persecution that started after Stephen was martyred. You guys remember that from the book of James, where the apostle, well, before he was the apostle, Paul, Saul, was present holding the coats of all the religious leaders and the different folks who came out with their stones and killed Stephen because of his message, right? This led to a, a persecution that scattered Christians. And this group of, of believers was, uh, lived in a culture that was influenced by Hellenism, or the influence of Greek culture, which started back at the conquest of Alexander the Great, when he began to conquer different lands. And this culture valued strength. In their culture, being meek or being gentle in spirit would have been something to look down on. An example of this would be like in some cultures today, for example, Mexican culture, Calling a man to be gentle or describing a man as gentle would go against the machista mentality of a, of a manly man. And people, not just in Mexican culture, but in general, I think most people prefer to be known as tough or as strong. But when you think of gentle, sometimes people jump to, oh, they're weak, they're helpless. But is that really what the Bible teaches us about being meek or gentle, as James calls us to be? Did you know that Jesus describes himself as being meek or as being gentle, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading? And he says that in Matthew eleven twenty nine, He describes himself as being meek and humble in spirit. So let me tell you something. Jesus, describing himself as gentle, he was not weak. He was not um, impotent. He was not helpless. Jesus was the manliest of men. 
he was a gentleman. He had the ability to control his strength, which is what gentleness or meekness means. It means the ability to control your strength. Think with me for a minute. Picture this. Jesus, the one who was present at the creation of the world, the one through whom the power of his word he used to create everything that exists, the one who at this present moment sustains the world by the power of his word. He holds the galaxies up and he keeps them from spiraling out of orbit and crashing. This God had the power, has the power. Jesus has the power to control his strength. And where did he do that most clearly? Well, when he left his throne and he came into the world. Gentleness is what Jesus exhibited when he was spit on, when he was mocked, when he came into the world to save us from sin. This is what he displayed and did on our behalf for every time that we have not been gentle, for every time that we have used our strength to intimidate others or have been rough and sinful with our spouse or with our kids or with our neighbors. Jesus used his gentleness for our good by taking on God's wrath for us that we would not be, so that we would be saved, but also so that we would be transformed by the power of the gospel. I'm sure we're all familiar with how much restraint it takes or how much restraint we lack to withhold our, our strength when somebody offends us. Can you think about what it took for Jesus as he's being spit on, as he's being mocked, as, be, as he's being, being ridiculed, for him to say, I'm not going to respond with evil for evil. Because all he had to do was say the word and like that, a legion of angels would have come and destroyed all of his enemies. More than that, all he had to do was say the word and like that, we'd all be annihilated. But Jesus is meek. Jesus is gentle. Jesus has the ability to control his strength, his power. Jesus shows us that you can be strong and gentle. That you, that you and I, that we can be human and possess heavenly wisdom. So I want to address our little kids, our children that are here today. I know that growing up, you can have many aspirations, you can have many desires to be like a superhero. Those that are strong, those that have superpowers. But you have to remember that strength and power alone is not what pleases God. It is strength and power that is gentle and is used for the good of others that has much value in the kingdom of God. So use your strength and power over things or, or, or over others like your siblings or your friends at school by controlling it in gentleness. Because gentleness seeks to, to do good to others. Gentleness thinks of others first. Gentleness practices self-control. And kids... This ability to be gentle is not just for mom and dad. 
is not just for adults. It's available to you if you put your trust in Jesus, our gentle God. And so I encourage you to talk to your mom or to talk to your dad after the service to learn more about this. So James teaches us that true and heavenly wisdom is evidenced by godly conduct. The second characteristic of wisdom is that earthly wisdom is self-centered. Earthly wisdom is self-centered, and we see that in verses 14 through 16. James writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So here we find three descriptions of a self-centered wisdom. First, James says that self-centered wisdom boasts about the wrong things. And we see that in verse 14. In verse 14, James says that Christians should not boast about having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Christians should not boast about bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. Now, when you hear that, you think, well, duh, right? If you're a Christian, you don't do that. But if you know sin, you know that sin has the ability to blind us and to not help us or, or to, to keep us from seeing the truth for what it is. Boasting is defined as excessively proud and self-satisfied talk about one's achievements, one's possessions or abilities. And from our context, we understand that some folks in the church were boasting about their own speaking abilities, about their own knowledge, about their own talents. When James refers to selfish ambition, he means that some were motivated by self-serving interests, not the good of the church, nor the glory of God. And again, as we saw last time, maybe these people within the church that desired to be teachers, maybe they were motivated by the desire to sit in high places. Maybe they were motivated by the, the, the desire to, to be recognized or to be respected or well thought of, as we read in uh, Scripture about how the Pharisees um, were motivated by uh, their roles. Bitter jealousy tells us that uh, or is about those who desire to teach uh, but experience jealousy of the church's teachers, even to the point of being bitter, angry, hurtful, resentful towards them. James says that those who experience these kinds of feelings ought not to boast about these things. That is, don't act out on these feelings as if it's something to be proud of. Maybe it looks like grumbling because you're not teaching and you think you should be. Maybe it's comparing yourself to those who teach thinking that you would do a better job. Possibly it's not just thinking these things but also telling others about it and in doing so boasting about these feelings. Brothers and sisters, this is something that ought not to be in the lives of Christians. This is something that we must repent of if we find this in our heart. Because in experiencing bitter jealousy and feeling self selfish ambition, we go against the truth of God's word that calls us to have 
godly ambition, and joyful contentment. Godly ambition leads us to want to use our life, our gifts, our talents, regardless of what the Lord calls us to do or how he calls us to use them as believers, whether it's as parents, as siblings, as workers, as church members, whatever it is that the Lord has gifted us with and wherever it is that he's called us, our desire is to use our gifts and to use our service for the glory of God. Joyful contentment leads us to trust God that in his wisdom and in his providence, he entrusts us with the responsibilities that we have. That he knows exactly what we will be effective in. That he entrusts us rightly with the responsibility that he wants to give us. So joyful contentment leads us to be content. And because of this, we know that we're not missing out, but have been adequately, adequately tasked to glorify God. And knowing that our calling has value in God's eyes, regardless of what He's called us to do, whether teacher or not, we can have joy because we know that what we do, we do for the glory of King Jesus. Now, godly ambition and joyful contentment. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus did when he was among us as well? Jesus, the king of the universe, entered our world by taking on flesh. But he did so not to demand to be served, not to boast that he is God and to demand special treatment. But instead, we're told that Jesus emptied himself of his power and served others. Brothers and sisters, this is what the gospel of Jesus calls us to do. It calls us to imitate our Savior, to imitate God as His beloved children. The good news of the gospel is that if we see any trace of sinfulness in our heart, if we repent of our sins and confess them, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, according to John, 1 John 1, 1.9. So if you find yourself feeling this way and have the desire to teach, one of the best things that you can do is to come to talk and talk to myself or talk to David. Because our desire is not to hoard uh, the teaching responsibilities or to be the only ones leading the church. Not at all. If anything, David and I, we hold to what James said in verses 1 through 12, that, hey, those of you who teach, just know that there co it comes with a stricter judgment. And knowing what we know about the tongue and its ability to be double-tongued and to be destructive and to be sinful, we, we do it with fear and trembling. And so the desire to teach is a good one. Anyone who aspires to be an overseer or a pastor desires a good work, according to what Paul tells us. But the Bible also gives us a process to... Fulfilling these roles. And we are happy to consider anyone who, wants, who feels called to this. But if we feel selfish ambition or jealousy, brothers, we need to repent. In all of this, we want to trust the Lord in what He has called us to do. And, and, and if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to talk to you about this more later. 
The second thing that we, that we see about earthly wisdom is that it doesn't come from God. And we see it in verse, uh, verse 15, that this is not the wisdom that comes from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James tells us that self-centered wisdom doesn't come from God. It's not one of the good gifts that God gives. Rather, it comes from the world. This means that there is a kind of wisdom that originates in the world, and thus is limited to the things of this world. That's not to say that earthly wisdom is not, that there is no good in earthly wisdom. There can be a lot of good in earthly wisdom. But remember the context. James is talking to those who desire to be teachers within the church. And he's saying that if those that teach or those that desire to teach, those that are within the church that desire to teach, want to teach with worldly standards... Worldly standards is not going to cut it in the church. Because worldly standards is limited to the things of this world. It has no eternal value. It can't lead us the way that God calls us to according to His wisdom. And so, worldly wisdom is limited to the things of this world. But it's also prone to error. This is why, when you come to FBC... I think one of the common things that we hear, uh, or I've heard at least, from our new visitors, or that I even experienced when I came to the church, was, oh, the worship's kind of dry. Or, hey, Oscar, I heard you're a Baptist. You guys are the people that don't clap, huh? You, we come to FBC, and the first thing that we notice is, hey, there's no... Fog and laser lights and big, you know, attractive things. There, pastors don't dress like hipsters. There's no, you know, nice um, a background. Brothers and sisters, the reason that we don't see that here and what we strive to do here at, at FBC is we don't let ourselves be moved by worldly wisdom, which says, if you do these things, then it'll equal these other things. But as one pastor once said, what you win people with is what you win people to. And if we win people with all these gimmicks and all of these, you know, things that are out there, what happens when we stop offering that? Bye. You don't see those people anymore because you won them with worldly tactics from the beginning. But if you pay attention to everything that we do in the church, whether it's the reading of the word, the praying of the word, singing of the word, the preaching of the word, our goal and our desire is to follow the wisdom of God, which as Danny read earlier, that God has chosen to save people through the folly of preaching by revealing the wisdom of God which is in Christ. This is why we aim to exalt Christ in everything that we do, whether it's teaching, singing, praying. That's what we aim to do. Heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. The third thing that we find about self-centered wisdom is that it's destructive. It's destructive. James tells us that earthly wisdom is destructive and the point that he makes here is that the result of this kind of worldly wisdom, if it's let into the church, 
it will lead to disorder and every vile practice. This creates disorder not only in a person's life, right? If you're motivated by envy and you're motivated by selfish ambition, well, the disorder is already taking place in your life because Scripture tells us that we were created by God and we were created for God. So our priority in life, our very first priority, the top priority ought to be that we live to the glory of God. But if you're motivated by selfish ambition and self-centeredness, guess who gets bumped down? God. And then we usurp His, his place in our life. There's disorder. That's one kind of disorder that can take place. But it, it can also lead to disorder in the actual assembly, in the congregation. And it can lead to every vile practice. I've shared this with you in the past, but I, I attended a church many years ago that went through a few divisions due to selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. From some of the church members, uh, in the, uh, in, in, from some of the church members in the church who desire to have a teaching or a pastoral role. Some in the church were not happy with who was leading at the time and they thought, I'm better. Uh, don't they know that I've studied here? Don't they know that I have money and so I deserve a special place? All of these things were happening that led to these divisions. These feelings which James tells us that lie in the heart led people to do some pretty crazy things. I remember that uh, on a few occasions, um, while one member preached, you had some from the opposing group interrupt the preaching by yelling out from the back a whole bunch of different inappropriate things. Or even saying, hey, you're a liar. Hey, you're this. Hey, you're that. In the service. This disorder. On a few occasions, the cops were called. 911 was called and it created a mess because it disrupted the service. You had the cops coming in saying, all right, who did what? It's crazy. One of the worst things that could happen is that in the end, the church ended up splitting up. But it ended with sinful lawsuits, which was a bad witness for the church, for the neighborhood, for the name of God. And it was believed by, this gr by the group that was doing these things that all of these things were done in the name of God because the group understood that they were, quote-unquote, protecting the house of God when in reality it was do being done under the guise of self-centered reasons, disorder, and vile practices. This is why James says that if anyone who desires to teach in the church has these kinds of motives. Don't be so quick to become a teacher because it will affect the church. This is an opposition to gentleness and good works. So James tells us that earthly wisdom is self-centered. And the last characteristic of wisdom is that heavenly wisdom is God-centered. And we see that in verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
Here we find three, uh, dis- three descriptions of God-centered wisdom. So, right, James is comparing earthly wisdom to heavenly wisdom, that which is self-centered and that which is God-centered. One of the first descriptions that we find of God-centered wisdom is that it is from God. James tells us that God-centered wisdom is from above. What a blessing that God gives his children wisdom to live in this fallen world. And thankfully, we're also told what this kind of wisdom looks like. The second thing that we're told is that it's fruitful. We're told that God-centered wisdom bears fruit, and it looks like this. It's pure, which means it's not tainted by sin. It's not motivated by evil. It's peaceable. It doesn't look for trouble. It doesn't start trouble, but it seeks peace. It's gentle. It looks to be helpful. It looks to help others and to do good to others. It doesn't look to be harmful. It's open to reason. One who possesses heavenly wisdom tries to be reasonable, uh, is open to being corrected if they're wrong. And if they're wrong by not being right, by aligning with what the Bible says, right? It looks to please God. It's full of mercy, meaning it's quick to forgive. It it doesn't repay evil for evil. It's willing to overlook an offense. It's full of good fruits. Godliness is the fruit of wisdom. And it's impartial, meaning that a a person who possesses heavenly wisdom is not double-minded, as James already talked to us um, in chapter 1, but it stands on the truth of God's word, and it doesn't waver. And last, it's sincere. It's genuine in its desire and its actions towards God and towards others. James teaches us that true heavenly wisdom looks like this. But one of the things that, or that, that should come to mind, I hope, is that as I briefly described these fruits, we're talking about the Lord Jesus himself, aren't we? This is who Jesus is. This is what he showed. This is how he lived when he lived among us. He was sincere in his desire to come save us. He was full of mercy, full of good fruits. He was impartial when he was tempted in the desert. And he said, hey, Jesus, uh, Satan said, hey, Jesus, there's a shortcut. You don't have to go die. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you the, the kingdom. He didn't say, all right, let's make a deal, but don't tell anybody. I'll take a shortcut. He said, get behind me, Satan. I didn't come to fulfill your plan. I came to fulfill the plan of God. Right? Or when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Father, if there is another way, please remove this cut from me, but let not my will be done, let your will be done. He was committed, 100%, unwavering. Right? He was peaceful and pure and gentle, sincere. And last, we're told that heavenly wisdom is peaceful. It begins with peace, and it's guided by peace. The temptation that comes with wisdom, whether in the world or in the church, is that the knowledge that one possesses can puff someone up, right? To say, all right, I'm smarter, I'm wiser, I'm better. And it 
can move to impose my way or the highway. But heavenly wisdom doesn't operate that way. It's peaceful. It's guided by peace. And the Bible tells us that God's people are to be characterized as peacemakers. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus says that blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called sons of God. Wisdom is peaceful, right? And in today's passage, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, as um, uh, Danny read for us, we're told of this wisdom. We're told that since the world did not know God in wisdom, God, in His wisdom, revealed to us the wisdom of God, and He did so through Christ crucified, which is the stumbling block to people. If you and I were given the task of creating a plan of salvation for mankind, none of us would have ever come up with the gospel. None of us would have ever said, hey, let's have God's Son come down and live for us, do everything that we should have done, and then die for us. And that's going to be the way that we find peace with God. None of us would have ever come up with that kind of wisdom. But the wisdom of God is seen on the cross, where God in His wisdom willingly sent His Son, and His Son willingly came. Jesus didn't say, no, Dad, don't send me, don't. Jesus said, Father, I will go. I will go and save them. And when He came, He came to do what we haven't done for our, for, for, uh, of what God expects of us, which is to obey Him fully, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. Not only did he do that, but then he went to go pay for our judgment. That's wisdom, the wisdom of God. And it all comes at zero cost to us, right? He doesn't say, write me a check and I'll forgive you. He doesn't say, go fix your life and then we can talk about possibly saving you. There's some things I don't like about you and we're going to have to work on that. He doesn't say that. He says, come and buy for me without money. It's a completely kind of different wisdom than the wisdom of this world. And none of us would have ever come up with this kind of wisdom. But God reveals His wisdom on the cross. And it's interesting that in that 1 Corinthians passage, it says that, uh, let me turn there real quickly. We're almost done. We're told that, for the foolishness of God, as if He had foolishness, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if God had some foolishness and if God had some weakness, guess what? It's still greater than anything that we can offer. And this wisdom has been seen, has been manifested in the sending of Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom and power of God. And if you are visiting us today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, there is good news. There's great news for you today. The Bible tells us that none of us are wise. 
None of us have sought God. None of us desire Him. We've actually become fools by thinking that we're wise, by turning to ourselves and living however we desire. And in doing so, we've earned for ourselves right judgment from God. And if God judges us, He will judge us for our folly, which is rebellion against God, which we're all guilty of. But the good news is this, that the wisdom of God is offered to you today. God says that if you repent of your sin and you put your trust in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, you repent of your folly and you turn and you trust in the wisdom of God, He will forgive you. He not only will forgive you, He will accept you as a child, He will adopt you, He will sanctify you, and He will make sure that you make it to the end. And this is the wisdom of God offered to sinful people like you and I. And so, if you're not a believer, I invite you, why wouldn't you turn to this all-wise God? Please, if you have any follow-up questions, talk to David, talk to myself, talk to whoever you came with, talk to any of the Christians here. We're more than happy to tell you of this wise and good news that comes from our Heavenly Father. But also... For Christians, we're told that Jesus is not only the wisdom of God here in the, in the first Corinthians passage, but he's also the power of God. Remember that strength that he keeps under control, that he doesn't use for evil? Well, he also uses that same strength for good. Because Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. God uses His power to give us a new heart, to transform our heart, to make us more like Jesus. And if you see yourself falling short, if you see any trace of these things, of these sinful um, desires or feelings in you, we can turn from our sin and we can turn to Christ and trust that He will use His strength, His power, His wisdom for our good. To conclude, if you see these things in your life, reject them. Turn away from them. Put them off, as Paul says, and put on Christ. You and I do this already in practical daily living things. I, um, ever, after Easy was born, took on the task of doing the groceries at home. And at first, Erica will attest to it, I did a pretty bad job, right? Because I would buy all the junk food and all the stuff that I liked. But, you know, she went with me a couple of times, and I was like, all right, cool, I think I got this. And then now when I go to, to Ralph's, I'm a fruit inspector, right? I pick up one avocado, and I'm like, ah, this one's not good. Oh, this one's good, right? I reject one, and I pick the other. If you see these things in your life, Reject it. Put it away. Do away with it. Turn to Christ. And put on the gentleness. Receive heavenly wisdom that is pure, that is gentle, that is open to reasoning, that is uh, unwavering. And second, I wonder if you are even seeking heavenly wisdom to begin with. Do you live your life 
striving to understand the mind of God and to know, God, how do you want me to respond in this situation at work that's very difficult? Or Lord, how, how do you want me to carry out my role or my responsibility at work? God, how am I to be a faithful father to you? I need your wisdom. I need your perspective. I need your help. James already told us in chapter 1, if any one of you lacks wisdom, ask God, because he will give it to you. He doesn't say, here you go, no, just kidding. Here you go, no, just kidding. He says, if you ask, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. It will be open to you. God will give it to you. And we, we can trust that he will because he tells us this. If we being evil know, know how to give good gifts to our children, right? He says, which one of you, if your child asked you for a piece of bread, would give them a rock, right? If, if he asked you for fish, would give them a serpent? None of us would do that. And so how much more will our good and generous Heavenly Father give us good things if we ask him? And so if you ask God for heavenly wisdom, he will give it to you. And he will give it to you for his glory and for your good. And so brothers and sisters, James wants us to know that heavenly wisdom is displayed by good conduct. Heavenly wisdom leads to godly conduct. Earthly wisdom is self-centered. And heavenly wisdom is God-centered. Let's pray. Our wise and gentle God, we come before you recognizing that we were those who are not, our, are not of noble birth, are not wise according to the world's standards, but those who have been in your kindness, chosen by you before the foundation of the world, that we would show and display your wisdom through the preaching and the, the proclaiming of your word. Father, we thank you for this great blessing. Lord, we ask that you would please forgive us for the ways that we trust in, heaven, in earthly wisdom, for the ways that we look to ourselves rather than looking to your word to, to make things happen for ourselves rather than trusting you. Father, would you please help us to depend on you Help us to know that you love us, that you care for us, and that you desire to bless us with everything that we have. Lord, would you please, please, Father, enable us to be those who display heavenly wisdom for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of your name. We ask these things trusting that you will give them to us because your word tells us anything that you ask According to your will, you will give it to us. And so we thank you that you will provide these things accordingly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.